into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your friendly neighborhood host, Samson Kovach, and we are here in part 21 in our series on the Bible. So we left off last time um, talking about, you know, the modern church and sort of how the modern church is like splintered off into a couple different areas, especially leaving off with uh, fundamentalism and evangelicalism. And I don't mean to make one sound better than the other because fundamentals are extremely important. They are fundamentalists, okay, are looking to preserve what we've always had, what's always been there. And we should just kind of stick with that. Even in the face of evidence, we should stay with what we've always interpreted. Whereas evangelicals would say, well, in the face of new evidence, perhaps we should, um, you know, evaluate that and look to see if it has any bearing, if it has any reasonableness, any, you know, rationale at all to the way that we interpret scriptures or the way that we interpret scripture. And, you know, because of this, you can start polarizing yourself into a very literalist camp that would sit there and say, no, the literal meaning of the text is what it should say. Now, this can be for a couple different reasons, but, you know, if you have a, a belief that you have married yourself to, no matter what happens, you're not going to walk away from that. You're not going to move away from it. And anybody that challenges it, whether directly or indirectly, you are going to immediately have a problem with, and you're not going to want to even open up to discussion. You're not even going to want to, you know, evaluate what they have to say because your preconceived notions of what the truth already is, is already so set that there's no way that you could possibly be swayed. And that can become problematic. I mean, it could be good in some ways, you know, but it can also be, you know, terribly debilitating in other ways. And I mean, well, people, you know, they tend to do this with a lot of different things, but we're going to stick with the Bible. But, you know, within the church, um, evolution is one. Um, some people are so staunchly against the concept of evolution that they won't even look at what somebody's trying to say when understanding it. And they'll ignore things like, you know, there were you know prominent Christians that believed in evolution. But when it comes to the Bible, you can get a lot of the same type of things. So that's what we're going to kind of talk about. Alright, so, um, whenever we discuss the Bible, and whenever we discuss interpretation, with the fundamentalist understanding of interpretation, one of the things that was very prominent at this time period was um, something called the Schofield Study Bible. Now, the Schofield Study Bible, and remember, we talked about different Bibles coming from different uh, denominations or different approaches, like the um, the New English Translation, the Net Bible, is evangelical in nature. It's, that, it's a translator's Bible. It's an evangelical you know, approach to translating the Bible and what we thought was important, which is why there are so many notes in it, where a, the Schofield Study Bible is um, very dispensational. 
in its approach. And dispensationalism is that the history in the Bible, well, from from the Bible, from you know Genesis, the Adam and Eve understanding, the other Adam and Eve story on through, there are seven different dispensations or seven different time periods in which God works and you know is sort of working in, in, in different ways, or approaching mankind in different ways because of that. Um the biggest indicator of somebody who's a dispensationalist is their understanding of the end times prophecies. If you've ever seen a Left Behind movies or read any of the Left Behind books, it's all dispensational uh, type stuff. It's different from covenantalism. Okay, um, dispensationalists see a separation between the church and Israel, and this study Bible was very prominent uh, in you know this early nineteenth century late. Well, I should say late 1800s, early 1900s. So, you know, early 20th century, late 19th century. And um, it was also, this idea was also um, uh, propagated by um, D.L. Moody. And, um, you know, Moody went around and and you had Moody publishing and stuff. And and he went around preaching and uh, proselytizing. And they were able to get a lot of literature to poorer churches, study guides, study materials, that sort of thing about the Bible, but it had a specific bent to it. And that was the dispensational bent, especially with a futurist eschatology and eschatology is the study of how we come, the study of the end times. Um, and it, you know, it had this, this pre-wrath, um, uh, pre tribulational rapture understanding that, you know, seven years before, uh, you know, Christ returns, that the church is going to be caught up in the air. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Maybe we'll do a theology pit on eschatology sometime, but all that to say that this time period of biblical interpretation is, is in, you know, it stuck in this time point because that's when it got a strong foothold with people. It got a traditionalist understanding, meaning that they're holding on to the tradition of it. And any interpretation of the Bible outside of that particular understanding, they would immediately say is wrong. Okay. And this becomes the issue because they don't want to look at any new information or they don't want to look at any information that would possibly shift their worldview in understanding how to interpret scripture, especially when it comes to end time prophecies. Now, if you would ask them about, you know, that particular concept, the eschatology, that particular end time scenario, uh, they would just say, well, it's just in the Bible. That's what the Bible says. Because every time they read the Bible, see, that's what they've been taught. That's what they've been told. That's how they were brought up. That's what they read. Okay. Nine times out of 10, that's what they read. If you said to them, you know, why is it that, you know, nobody else has really, I mean, you really have to go searching and reading into um, early church fathers and, you know, other uh, Christians that came before to find, you know, this, this different understanding. I think it was in like, uh, I want to say 1830s or 1870s that this understanding came about. And uh, the biggest reason why and I think I think it may have been you know 1830s. I'm, I'm wanting to guess because of the conquest of Napoleon Bonaparte. One of the key aspects of this type of end times understanding is that there's going to be a central world government, a one world government, um, separation between the church and Israel, of course, and one person is going to rule everything. In the Left Behind series, it's Nikolai Carpathia, but um, I think that's I think it's who I haven't read that in a long time, but I th- I'm pretty sure that's who the the um, the main would he be the protagonist. 
if he's the bad guy, but I, I guess, well, one of them, um, but that's contradictory. And anyways, um, letting my, my grammar self get in the way here. Anyways, my point is, is that nobody sat there interpreting the Bible, especially the end times as literal because it just seemed unfathomable unfathomable that one person could control the entire world. But when Napoleon Bonaparte pretty much did it, you know, and I think it was his nephew after him that controlled everything politically, people started reinterpreting their Bibles. They started reading their Bibles going, huh, you know what? It just might be possible. Maybe we have a different way of understanding that we should be understanding this. Now, the way that they were understanding it, would either be in a um, uh, what's called a preterist understanding, meaning a past, a partial preterist understanding, which means part of it has happened. So the difference is like the preterist would say everything's happened, Christ's return, we're in the thousand year millennium right now, waiting for uh, you know the great white throne judgment and um, you know his his full return. Even some preterists would say he hasn't returned yet. We are just we're in a um, a like a millennial period that is just in between and and of course millennial meaning thousand years but it's just a figure of speech of a long period not an exact time but they would say that the majority of it happened uh destruction of the temple in 70 AD uh the the persecutions of Nero they would say that that's all you know, taking place. And that's how we understand the book of revelation. And there's, or, you know, there's strengths and weaknesses to that. I don't want to go off too much on this because we have a lot to get, get towards. But, um, then later on with, um, the Diocletian persecutions and, you know, all, all of those different things that happen, um, people started interpreting it in a historicist viewpoint. Okay. Saying, no, this is the way things happen throughout all of history. Okay. Uh, Martin Luther was, was one at the time who held to more of a historicist viewpoint. He saw the Pope as the antichrist. Whenever you read, and I think it's revelation 13 about the antichrist, you know, he would be saying, yes, look, the Pope is the antichrist. And this is what we're, what we're dealing with. And then you would have a uh, spiritualist view, and this would be much more allegorical. And then, of course, you have the the literal view. So, you know, all that to say that as things in history that have changed our worldview or changed our ideas or our thinking also taint us whenever we go to interpret scripture. And we need to recognize that. We, uh, you know, when I mentioned Jack Van Impey, you know, podcast previous about newspaper eschatology, reading the newspaper and lining up with, with the Bible, um, recognize if you're doing this. I mean, kind of question yourself on why do I believe this particular thing? Is it because of, you know, properly interpreting the Bible or is it because it's always what I've been taught or, you know, do I see that because I'm looking around at the events around me? Now, I'm not saying that any of these are right or any of these are wrong. I'm just saying, you know, it's a very good idea for us to recognize exactly what our presuppositions are before we go into it, you know, and understanding and understanding scripture and understanding passages. And that's why it's important to hold this, you know, historical, grammatical, literary hermeneutic, um, because it kind of takes you out of the equation and it kind of pushes it towards, you know, them at the time, the, the original audience and the original writers. So, you know, there's, there's a couple issues 
when you're approaching the Bible here that you need to kind of watch out for. Now, we've gone over the study so that we know what it is. And at first, like I think like what the first 10 weeks or more, I really spent a lot of time looking at the Bible as a book of man. If it was just written by man, is it reliable just from a man aspect? From a totally Christian aspect of it, you know, the uh, doctrine of preservation and all that stuff, it's very easy for us to say, of course we can trust it. It's the word of God. The word of God never changes, just like God never changes because it's his word and God protected it. And what we have now, you just have to believe and have faith that that is what God intended. And it's good. Um, But I wanted to go a different route with it. So I went for more the man side of it. Now, the difference between the two, and you really shouldn't take sides on this. You should understand that it's a book of man and a book of God, just as you understand that, you know, Jesus is truly man and truly God. Okay. Um, Is that when inspiration of the Bible is strongly believed that, you know, it basically almost short of saying a copy of it fell from heaven and we've just made copies since then. Okay. It's just short of that, that this is fully inspired. Then you'd get biblical docetism that would occur. And, you know, dakeo is, is the root word of docetism and it means to seem or to appear. And so, that is saying, biblical docetism would say, it appears to be a work of man, but in reality, this is the work of God. This is the writing of God. This is God's hand on it. This is mechanical dictation. This is God's word, basically, that fell out of the sky. Okay? And then that becomes the factor because... If anything is challenged in here, for example, if you would say, well, there is a lot of unnecessary detail in some of the historical narratives, okay, they would fight you on that tooth and nail, okay? No, every single part of it is inspired. Well, what about some parts that might not be inspired? I mean, aren't there places, and this is just popping into my head, I'm, I have to look up the exact address, but where Paul says, now this is me writing, this is me talking to you now. You know, so kind of sidestepping out and and it makes you wonder, okay, is that inspired or was he inspired to speak out of himself and the Holy Spirit then guided him and what, you know, he can say, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, play that kind of goes in there, but stuff where it says, you know, oh, uh, to Timothy, you know, come and get my, bring me my cloak, you know, cause I'm cold. All right. Paul's cold. Bring him his cloak. I mean, if that was in your Bible, really, I mean, how... How, how much of a problem would that be for you? You know, I mean, think about Third John right now. A lot of you are saying, "Oh, I know it exists, but I'm not sure what it really says." And it's like, well, if Third John wasn't there, you know, would that be such a big deal? Um, somebody that is a biblical docetist, or um, yeah, we'll, we'll just say that 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 would be somebody that would freak out with anything like that. And if we actually found the real copy, uh, a copy of the real First Corinthians, you know, they would be staunchly against putting it in the Bible. They wouldn't even consider it. Now, um, the the flip side of that. Okay, and and because of this, you can get something called you know bibliolatry, where you know people are worshiping the Bible rather than the God of the Bible. Um, but the flip side of that is where inspiration is completely downplayed. Okay, and then you are just saying that it it really is a, a book of man, but it's it's you know it's there to teach us these you know things about God, and you will not use proper exegesis. Um, 
in, in understanding because there would be really no principles and there really would be no application that would be standard from it. It would all come down to, well, that was just, you know, Matthew's opinion on that thing, or that was just Peter's opinion on that subject or that, you know, it would be sort of like how in America we look at the Supreme Court, you know, or how we should look at the Supreme Court in saying that, you know, the Supreme Court does not make laws, it renders opinions on the law. It's the it's the Supreme Court of the land that renders an opinion and says, whether or not this law should be, you know, overturned or upheld. Okay. And then technically I think that it should go back. I don't, I don't think that they're not in the job of, of writing laws. Um, so that's the point. They would look at this as sort of like the Supreme court aspect of it, that the Bible renders an opinion. Okay. But that opinion could be, you know, rejected or accepted. So the only consistently reliable hermeneutic, which is art and science of biblical interpretation, the only you know reliable way to interpret the Bible um, that takes the text at face value, the almost literal meaning of what it's saying, looking at the authorial intent, um, is in the historical and grammatical context. Okay, understanding who wrote it, what kind of literature it is, who they're writing to, what's the point of them writing to to these, you know, whoever the audience is, what the audience is supposed to get out of it and how they are supposed to apply it to their lives. Okay. If you're able to do that, then you are well on your way to properly interpreting the Bible. Now, the allegorical interpretation, a lot of people would say it has to be rejected. I would say the majority of people would say, I mean, I would be one that would do that. And the reason why, not because I don't think that there is a a secondary meaning that there could be, but here's the problem with it. There's no actual way to test it. It's, and I don't want to make my you know, Roman Catholic listeners mad about this, but um, the difference between the, the, the two poles of Roman Catholicism of scripture and tradition is that tradition is this unwritten set of rules that are passed down. And, you know, scripture is, the, the written set. So it is static and it is knowable and you can go back to it and you can, you can look at it where the other one is ongoing. Okay. The other one is, you know, as it happens, which gives it a level of subjectivity, not only subjectively, um, what's being put forward, but also subjectively in the way that it's understood and in the way that it's interpreted. So, Whenever you have um, a, a completely allegorical style, that becomes the issue, that you are not able to uh, I- interpret it in any objective way. It's only in a subjective way. So you also should be careful to give um, credibility and weight to the regula fide, which is the rule of faith. And those are like the core, like essential uh, positions that the Christian church has always held to, you know, Christ's resurrection, uh, his deity, um, the concept of the Trinity, like those sort of things, the uh, inspiration of scripture being God's word. If you're straying out of those areas, uh, that can be problematic. Um, and, and that's when, you know, if, if you're ever interpreting your Bible and you're sitting there reading and you're, you're doing your studies, or maybe you're with a study group and all of a sudden you guys come up with something totally new, or you come up with something totally new that nobody has ever found before ever in the history of the church. I'm going to tell you 90% 
be 90% sure that you're wrong. Okay. There might be that 10% there, but if the, if it's not backed up by scripture and by tradition and by history and everything else that, you know, you look reason, um, reliability, all of that stuff, pretty good chance that you're wrong. And it's probably a heretical position. Uh, but if you articulate something a little bit more clear than what has been articulated before, I think that you're in a safe place there. Okay, so remember the rule of faith. Okay, and finally, as Christians, the scriptures are to be interpreted through uh, the light of Christ. It's to be Christocentric, okay? You can look at it and you can say, you know the end result. You know what's what's coming about. So when you look at prophecies and you can see that, oh, this is speaking about Christ and you have a, a better understanding, a, a better uh, a type of tunnel vision, I guess, that a non-Christian wouldn't have as they're reading through it. They wouldn't understand it and they wouldn't see it. So the end result of all this is if it is just a book of God, okay, dropped out of the sky, um, it's going to be dominated by a search for a second and deeper meaning because you're going to say, well, God speaks on many levels. Interaction with God brings correct interpretation. Therefore, if you you know, are, are claiming that you are speaking in tongues or speaking for God or prophesying or having visions or anything like that. Things that are totally possible, but, you know, hold it up to scripture to make sure that what you are experiencing is in line with God's word. If you're claiming to be a prophet, you have to do miracles. Okay. Or at least a miracle before the prophecy to establish yourself as a prophet and not, um, like a, a sleight of hand miracle. It's usually something big. Um, at the, you know, at, at the time when that test was put in place, you know, miraculous healings, weather patterns, like, you know, things like that. Um, sometimes this whole God, you know, understanding of just, just God, uh, on the Bible, writing the Bible, this God perspective can be purely subjective because, you know, well, God speaks to me about what's in the Bible. And so therefore I speak for God and that's just how it's going to be interpreted. Well, that's completely uh, subjective. And you're going to start spiritualizing everything. You're going to start your allegorization of everything. And you're going to start getting into letterism. And even, I would even say, um, uh, numberism as far as chapters and verses go. Because you're going to start seeing the chapters and verses as significant. And I I talked about that with the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 66. Um, If you look at it as just man-centered, you're going to have another problem because you find no other meaning than the historical. That's just going to be it. Oh, okay, that was nice. You know, it just just tells you what what happened. But, you know, the interaction with the text brings correct interpretation, but it's purely objective, historical, and you're going to get into higher criticism. For example, you're not going to pull things over like Paul saying that, you know, uh, a woman's head should be covered. Uh, Well, that was a cultural thing. So you're you're not going to take the cultural aspect out of it. You're just going to say, oh, well, they just wore head coverings there and women don't wear head coverings anymore. So this means nothing. This has no meaning for us today. But if you have this God-man 
aspect of it, okay, of, of interpretation, then the spiritual meaning is found through a study of the original intent of the author, looking the history, grammar, and literature, keeping the writings in their context, and letting them speak for themselves. All right, so some principles of biblical interpretation here. Um, Christians are the only ones who can truly understand and submit to the text through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, um, chapter 2, verse uh, 14 through 16, it says, The unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The one who is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is understood by no one. For if for who has known the mind of the Lord so, as so to advise him? but we have the mind of Christ. All right. So again, I'm going to talk about recognizing your, your pre understandings here. And there, there's a bunch to kind of look over first and foremost, recognize your theology. Hopefully listening to the theology pit, you're starting to understand and develop a theology and what the theology means and how you are going about um, doing theology and understanding it. And remember theology is sort of like a spider web. Okay. Um, if, if you vibrate one point of that web, it's going to ripple through all of your um, theological understandings. Uh, for instance, your attitude towards baptism, you know, whether it's to baptize infants or baptize adults, that is going to have a, um, a significance on uh, the governance of the church. Your um, understanding of the Lord's Supper, you know, that also is uh, going to you know, kind of ripple through everything else, uh, whether or not man has free will and how that works with God's sovereignty and with uh, salvation. So understand that, understand your religious tradition too. know whatever church tradition that you're in, know what it is, what it says and what they believe. Okay. So not so you can read that into scripture, but that you can recognize when it's reflected back to you in scripture. And understand that other religious traditions do that too. Read and study other religious traditions. Some people don't like when I say that because they're like, you shouldn't mix doctrines. And I'm not saying mixing doctrines. I'm saying understand what the different doctrines and dogmas of different denominations are and where they get some. And, you know, weigh it out, uh, you know, as, as evenly as you possibly can. And, and always give the benefit of the doubt, okay? Never say, well, these people just believe this because they're stupid. Let me see why they're stupid. That's not going to help you out um, when understanding another denomination's position. Um, if, if you listen through the um, Salvation series I did, I mean, I went through a lot of different traditions and, you know, uh, doing my best to defend all of them because they were all very, very reasonable from their perspective. So you have to kind of understand that and know your tradition. Uh, your culture is another one. Your culture, recognize that it's going to have uh, some play also here. Um, 
your family background, your your social class, your race and ethnicity, um, your sinfulness, world events, political beliefs, education, uh, generation, emotional makeup. Uh, political beliefs is a big one. I mean, I've had people try to make the argument that Jesus was a liberal and Jesus was a conservative. And, you know, I was a conservative until I read the Bible and studied the life of Jesus, and then I became a liberal. And other people say, well, I was a liberal, and then I studied the Bible and the you know, the words of Jesus, and I became a conservative. All right, look, um, you know, there is no, like, a hardcore political bent to that. I mean, if you want me to get into politics, that would be a different, uh, you know, podcast altogether. But um, be sure to keep the text in its literary context. If it's poetry, please understand it as poetry. If it's apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, understand that in apocalyptic literature, there's going to be, you know, um, symbols and there's going to be imagery that is used to convey uh, the message. If you're looking at it as a historical narrative, but it's going to be using, you know, idioms, which are dead metaphors, or it's it's going to be using things that are like, like for example, we use the word hermeneutics, but yet we don't believe in the in the Greek gods. It's just we're using, you know, those um, those ideas in order to make a uh, a bigger statement. Um, the book of Genesis, for example, is narrative. Okay. And it has, it's just the theological history of Israel. And, and you know what? This is another thing that the Bible is not a science textbook. The Bible is a theological history of the generation, degeneration and regeneration of mankind. That's it. It's, you know, I, I think it was, uh, Kathy Emmons one time said to me about the Bible if some, or, or about the dictionary and said, if somebody asked her, you know, well, what is the, what is the dictionary? Is it a, um, you know, is, is it a good novel or is it a cookbook? You know, something like that. Well, it's, it's, it's neither. It's, you know, it's a set of words. You don't read it like it's a book. It's, it's a reference, uh, tool. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's narrative and uh, law and and a legal aspect, and it's a theological history of Israel in a theocracy. And remember, a theocracy is only something God can set up. Mankind cannot set up a theocracy, so anybody screaming that Christians want to make America into a theocracy don't understand the first point of a theocracy, and it's that man can't make a theocracy. If the if 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 mankind could go in that direction, then it would be was that an anthropocracy, like something like that. You know, it would be it would be man centered. You know, not not uh, God centric. Um, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Those are all narrative and their theological histories of Israel. Everyone, thanks for listening to the Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Okay, um, you know, when you're going through Psalms, you know that Psalms are poetry. Okay, they're, they're poetry and they're, they're songs. They can be you know, musical 
numbers also. They have a certain flow to them. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, that's your wisdom literature. Then you have your prophecy stuff, okay? And the poetry is an emotional praises to God. Wisdom is just wise living, how to, you know, conduct your, your affairs. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's advice. It's an advice column in, in a way. Um, you know, the prophecy aspect was all a uh, you know, to call Israel to repentance by saying, you know, if you don't do these things, here's what's going to happen. Or if you do do these things, here's what's going to happen. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. These are all historical narratives, okay? Um, some scholars have said that the book of John, it looks like, um, you know, a, what a stereotypical biography would be like for Jesus, at, you know, from a Jewish perspective at that, at that time. Because of its bookends, you have in the beginning, you know, of, of a biography, you're telling people about who they're going to be reading about. And at the end, you have the conclusion of, you know, people coming to understanding of who this person was. Everything in the middle is just to support the beginning and the end. So if you remember in the beginning of John's gospel, you have in the beginning was the word and word was with God and the word was God. And the first chapter is going through showing how Jesus Christ is the logos. Jesus Christ is God. He is, uh, he is the same as God, you know, that you worship of you know, the Old Testament. It's, it's kind of hard for us to imagine, you know, talking about Jesus in absence of the New Testament, but this is what, you know, John's gospel is uh, doing in a way. It's, it's pointed out. And then towards the end with um, Thomas, my Lord and my God. Um, all the other books in the New Testament from Romans to Jude, those are epistles. They're didactic in nature, which means teaching in nature. Uh, they're pastoral letters written to explain theological teachings for the church. That's what they're for. So if you really want to understand, you know, what Christianity means, those, that big bulk of, of work that, you know, a lot of it is the, the, uh, body of Paul's writings, the Pauline corpus is what you'd be studying and reading. And of course, revelation is apocalyptic and that's, um, a message of hope for the church that, Hey, you know, stuff may be bad and stuff's going to be bad, but in the end we win is pretty much what happens or rather Christ wins. So keep the text in its intentional context with the authorial intent. And I would say that, you know, while you're keeping it in its grammatical text also, you know, you can kind of either work out and then bring it in for an understanding. When you're reading something, understanding what testament it's in, what book it's in, what um, the pericope, and that is the unit of thought. The unit of thought might be one verse. It might be two verses. It might be a paragraph. It might be a chapter. It might be the whole book. Okay, but what is the unit of thought, the measure of thought, the, the logic within it? Um, you know, from, from one point to another. It's not, you know, switching gears. Um, then, you know, understanding... The, the paragraphs themselves, you know, why, uh, they, you know, what they're trying to say, uh, the sentences, and then finally the words that are used. Now, um, some of the historical issues to consider whenever you're doing this stuff uh, is, okay, the author, understand who wrote it, uh, the date when it was written, the audience who it was written to, and the circumstances are 
or purpose is, what was going on at the time and why was it written. Now, you may think that I'm repeating myself a lot, and I really am, because I want to nail this home for you so you can walk away from this and you can start studying your Bible with kind of all this stuff in hand. You're not just picking it up and, and assuming that it's all you've written in the same way, that there are different styles within it. Um, so just like you examine yourself in, you know, the things that are influencing you also think about the author and what's influencing them or the people that they're writing to and what's influencing them, whether it's political, geographic, um, economic, legal, um, social, dietary, clothing, philosophical culture, um, whether it's religious or not between uh, Judaism and Christianity. So uh, keep the text in its stylistic context. Um, John was is a very simple writing style, extreme use of ex- esoteric concepts. You're going to see light and dark um, word, uh, you know, words in there. Uh, love, hate, you know, a lot of uh, extremes. Uh, Paul is very logical and passionate, and he writes very in a very excited style. Okay, James is pastoral and sarcastic. Uh, David is is very passionate and emotional. And now, Luke is detailed and historical. Remember, he was going out to write down an orderly account. It says that right in the beginning of his uh, his gospel. Um, and they keep the text in context of the revelation. There's progressive revelation. So, um, you know, Abraham knew more than Adam did. Uh, Moses knew more than Abraham. David knew more than Moses. Uh, Isaiah knew more than David, Moses, Adam, and Abraham. Uh, Matthew knew more than all of them. Uh, Paul knew more than, you know, anybody else. You know, he had all that history to work up to. And John, possibly being the latest, probably was, uh, had the benefit of all of this understanding, you know, before him. So, you know, whenever he's writing, uh, you look at his gospel and how forceful he is with showing that Jesus is God. Even um, uh, the atheist agnostic, whatever he wants to call himself, Bart Ehrman, um, who's a, a, a textual critic, a New Testament scholar, uh, even said that whoever wrote the Gospel of John certainly does think that Jesus Christ is God. I mean, that's because that is what John is doing. And John is one who walked with Christ uh, and learned from him. He was the beloved disciple with all of this knowledge and evidence and everything uh, behind him that he could then stand on. And his proclamation is Jesus Christ is God. So let's let's talk about some uh, some fallacies that can happen because these are ones that you know I've done in the past. Everyone's done in the past, and you know when you're in any type of Bible study, you may hear them come up. Okay, so the pre-understanding fallacy is a big one, and that is believing that you can interpret with complete objectivity. You can't. You just absolutely can't. The best you can do is recognize where your presuppositions are, what they are, and even within the group and what, what the group is. Um, the incidental fallacy, reading incidental historical text as prescriptive rather than descriptive. This is a big one. All right. Prescriptive means it's prescribing exactly what you should do. Descriptive is describing what happened. So, you know, a lot of atheists like to take the Old Testament and, you know, show that, you know, um, these people went in the battle or these people were killed or this type of stuff happened or um, David had many wives or, um, you know, like they'll, they'll do it with marriage. They'll say, well, Christians say the marriage between one man and one woman, but they want the biblical definition. Well, what's the biblical definition? having 300 
wives and 300 concubines like Solomon did, um, you know, sleeping with people's wives and then, you know, having them killed like David did. Or, yeah, I mean, they're like, yo, which one should we have? Having many wives? No, there's a difference between it describing the way things occurred and prescribing the way that they should be. I should note, however, that in those different examples in marriage, they never ended very well. Okay. Yes. David was a serial adulterer. He murdered Uriah. It's even recorded in the histories, um, you know, that, uh, um, you know, one of Jesus, uh, relatives or you know that um that he was descended from uh was you had Bathsheba in there and it says Bathsheba the wife of Uriah specifically letting people know and always remember that that she was the wife of Uriah even though um you know David took her as a wife got her pregnant had her husband killed and eventually married her and Solomon then came about from um you know that she Solomon was one of her children uh from David that you know is is within the lineage okay but she is still recorded as the wife of Uriah. And remember, David's family, uh, I mean, you had, um, you know, his children raping each other, um, you know, his, some of his children, like, threatening to kill him, throwing him out, sleeping with his concubines publicly to, you know, show, and, and his, you know, other wives publicly to show that they are the king now. His house was a mess, okay? His family was a mess. This is not something to emulate, okay? That is descriptive, not prescriptive, and nothing in scripture is prescribing you to live that that way. Keep that in mind whenever you are reading and understanding. Um, the obscurity fallacy is building theology from obscure material. And we talked about this with baptism for the dead and, you know, the, Christ goes to tell the other sheep. Um, a lot of like Mormon stuff like comes out of that uh, obscure fallacy stuff. Uh, word study fallacies, um, like the etymological root fallacy or the illegitimate totality transfer fallacy or selective use meaning fallacy. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that, um, in a, in a little bit here, let me just get some of the other ones out of the way. Um, the etym etymological root fallacy, uh, looking to the root etymology of a word to discover its meaning. Um, the problem with this is that the etymology can also be deceiving. Think of the English word butterfly. If you broke that apart to butter and fly, what is the image that you're getting? Either a fly made out of butter or, you know, butter that is in a shape of a fly or what any, anything that you do with those two understanding, you're not going to come about with the, a picture of, you know, a caterpillar, you know, uh, becoming something else. Um, that will just like confuse the, um, the, the usage of the time at it. Also, you know, looking at it, um, the, the word itself. Okay. And when you look at the word itself, um, you, for, for example, in an English example, the word brother. Okay. Uh, sometimes I greet, you know, people as brother, Every now and again, you know, ask me how I'm doing. I'll tell them I'm living the dream, brother. You know, I don't mean that they are literally like my brother, like, you know, we share the same mother type thing. Okay. Um, in the black American community, uh, brother is said a lot. Cousin is said a lot. Um, you know, that sort of thing. 
not saying that you know everyone that calls everyone is a as an actual brother is an actual cousin there could be some type of familial you know relation there but there may not be and just because that is the common vernacular of the day does not mean that whenever somebody's looking at it 100 200 300 1000 years from now that they should immediately take that to mean that these people are directly related through a maternal bond Okay. Um, so whenever, and this is why, you know, I, I, I do hold to the concept of Mary being an ever virgin. Um, when I look at the, the difference between, um, Adelphos and a Nepsion, uh, in, in the Greek New Testament, one meaning cousin and one meaning brother, um, just because, you know, a, a Nepsion is used infrequently, but Adelphos is used, uh, you know, frequently, I don't sit there and say, well, they were all related in, in some way, you know, it's, you want to be careful with doing things like that. Okay. The relationship may be through marriage or something like that. It doesn't have to be that, but illegitimate totality transfer. Okay. This is bringing the full meaning of the word with all of its nuances to the present usage, taking the Greek verb phileo, for example, the USB dictionary of the Greek new Testament lists these possible meanings. Number one, to have deep feeling for, love, like, um, or to do or be something, uh, or to kiss. Some interpreters would commit an illegitimate totality transfer by using all of the nuances that the word phileo means. Um, Has when, in fact, it usually only carries one meaning that is determined by context, okay? So if phileo can mean to like, to kiss, or to have deep affection for, all right? And again, you know, phileo is just, we translate it just as, you know, love you know, a lot of times. Like, we'll just translate it as love, okay? Um, a f- uh, philosophy is uh, phileo, you know, meaning to love, and sophia meaning wisdom, to love wisdom, okay? Or the love of wisdom, all right, that's philosophy. That's how we use it. Um, uh, uh, philia is, um, you know, another root word of it, or another you know use of it. Um, but also, you can have like a selective meaning. So it's like the illegitimate totality transfer in reverse. You then take the word. And you're taking it out of context still, but you're giving it the meaning or the definition of what you want it to say rather than what it's saying to support, you know, your idea or to support what your the, the message that you're trying to put forward, what you're trying to, to prove. All right. Um, the eisegetical fallacy is reading theology into the text okay that is like you know taking the concept of a calvinistic understanding of predestination and then reading that into the text where it may not be saying that and i've i've come across that many many times being part of a presbyterian church and i've told people that you know that that's not what this is saying and they would ask me well you don't don't you believe in predestination i say that's not what i'm saying uh, i'm saying that you're in the right church you're in the wrong pew um that you and if you're presbyterian that makes a lot more sense you know uh, that analogy but um what i'm saying is that there are other scriptures and other areas that support predestination and what you're saying but this is not one of them so let's not force that into this text because it it's actually 
um, minimizing the uh, the effect of this text and the effect of it and what it's trying to say is actually bigger than what you're uh, ascribing to it. So allow it to speak for itself. And then the maverick fallacy is that uh, believing that you don't need anyone but the Holy Spirit to interpret the text. Okay. So, um, you are kind of the Lone Ranger Christian in a way. Um, there are uh, people who are non-Christians and heretics on YouTube, or, and, and they would I call them non-Christians, but they would call themselves Christians, who, when you listen to their testimony and, and you know what they're teaching is just completely wrong. It's um, uh, fallacious all over the place. Um, I've had interactions with some of them, and. You know their their testimonies would be that they one day just decided that you know with their church and what their church was teaching that they weren't sure if they agreed with it or not. So they decided to go and lock themselves in their room. And one guy in particular said, "My uncle and I just started reading the Bible together, and we just decided to take the Bible for what it said, and we just read it. And now they have become the arbiter of what is correct." the correct interpretation of scripture people that disagree with them i mean you could break it you can almost break it out like their arguments out syllogistically that you know if the first premise is you know uh, my interpretation is correct the second premise is my interpretations have never been wrong uh, by you know i've never been proven wrong because i refuse to accept anybody proving me wrong therefore my conclusion is my interpretation is always right so if you disagree with me it's because you know satan has veiled your eyes or you know you uh don't know what you're talking about or you are uneducated or you've never read or you've never looked and some of these people i've even asked well what's your methodology that you're using for interpretation and you know, they just look at me like a deer in the headlights. Like, they're like, what are you talking about? I just sat down and read it. It is plain. It is clear. You can understand it. Again, the, um, the fallacy from, I think, last week that we, that we talked about with um, the perspicuity of, of Scripture, that it's, it's clear enough so they understand, well, anybody can read it because it's the Word of God. And, you know, God wrote it so that everybody can clearly understand it. And if people would just read it, it just says what it is. And that is it. And they ignore, you know, everything else. So, you know, a, you know, a, a funny... Um, satirical opening for a, a homily from them would be something like this. Dear friends, I have a message for you from God's word. I assure you that I have not consulted any commentaries, lexicons, so-called theologians, or any other outside resource that might be fraught with unfounded traditions. I have relied upon the Holy Spirit alone as I interpret the Holy Scriptures. Therefore, rest assured, the message that I have for you today is from God alone. All right, that, I mean, that's those type of people, all right? Uh, and it's, it's you know, it's pretty much saying that nobody is a Christian except for them and their small flock, to be honest. And there's, you go onto YouTube, you can find a lot of people like that. Oh, I shouldn't even say that. Don't, don't go to YouTube. Take my word for it. There are a lot of people like that. You don't need to subject yourself to that kind of stuff. Um, Craig Bloomberg, in his book, uh, Introduction to Biblical Interpretation, said this, the church throughout the ages constituted by the Holy Spirit provides accountability 
It offers the arena in which we can formulate our interpretation. Such accountability guards against maverick and individualistic interpretations. So a lot of times, um, churches like the Roman Catholic Church that would say, um, you know, Protestants just interpret the Bible however they want. In one sense, they're correct. In another sense, they're absolutely wrong. Um, because there are so many different denominations and once a new one pops up, it always falls under the umbrella of Protestant. There really is no guideline like with the Roman Catholic Church in understanding, um, you know, what the definition of one thing is or another. Um, they, would see no difference between an Anglican, a Lutheran, an Episcopalian, and you might be even thinking, aren't Episcopalians and Anglicans the same thing? Um, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, non-denominational. They wouldn't see any difference in there. They would just say, we have a pope. We have a magisterial authority. You have a paper pope. And the Bible is your paper pope, and you have no way of interpreting what you're reading. You really don't have anybody that spends their lives and, and um, you know has a system set up that dates back you know thousands of years and how we're to interpret. So why should we not consider you maverick? And you know, Protestants on the other hand would say, well, because the specific type of interpretation, and, and of course this isn't speaking for all Protestants, and that becomes the problem. The specific type of interpretation that we're using is this. And if you don't know, you know, what method of interpretation you're using, you know, this is a good time to find out. This is a good I'm I'm glad that you've gone through this study. I mean, you you guys have learned so much about interpreting the Bible just going through the study, uh, that you should be able to do that now. You can go ask your, your pastor whenever he's um, you know, getting ready for his sermon, whenever he's writing a sermon out for the week. If he writes a sermon out for the week, some, some pastors don't do that. You know, it depends on the church. Um, but you know, ask him, what you know, hermeneutical method did you use? And I mean, you're going to start speaking seminary language to them, and they're going to be like, "Oh, well, okay, well, I used I used this, and this is what I consulted, and this is what I did." A lot of times, you know, good pastors um, will be able to show you, you know, where they're getting their information from, and, and all of their notes, and how they're, you know, compiling uh, what they've learned. Very rarely do you get pastors, and I have been in these church where you, churches where you've had pastors say. I stand up there and I open my mouth and unless the Holy Spirit moves me, I don't know what I'm preaching on and I won't say anything. If the Holy Spirit doesn't move me, I'll just stand there with my mouth open. Zero, um, you know, uh, oh, why is the word escaping me? Zero preparation. That's what it is. Uh, beforehand, as though somehow that studying and preparing is, you know, a squelching the power of the Holy Spirit, as though God the Holy Spirit cannot work through your studies and your preparation time, you know. Um, so, what I'm going to do, because this is the pretty much the end of it, um, and so as like a wrap-up show for next week, I am going to do a 
sort of a Bible study. It's going to be like this one hour Bible study in a way, but I'm not just going to be doing a Bible study presentation Bible study, which you're all probably used to. Someone's done the work and they're explaining to you that and taking you through passages. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try and spend the first 30 minutes of it telling you how I've compiled um, what I want to talk about and where it comes from and what I'm putting together. Okay, so I want to I want to kind of walk you through the process of how to actually put together a Bible study or how to actually come to understand a certain precept in scripture. And I'm going to be talking through that you know, entire process that I'm doing. And it's going to be on um, the doctrine of justification. I kind of wanted this to dovetail into um, the ending of uh, the Salvation series I did because it's something that I wanted to do at the end of the Salvation series, but I didn't know exactly how to, to formulate it, exactly how to put it in place because, you know, I'm going to be using so many things that I really didn't talk about methodologically that I was able to go over in these last 20 weeks. So this next one is going to be a, an example of how I'm going about understanding the doctrine of justification uh, from the perspective that I've laid out uh, in the Salvation series. And that is this, that the doctrine of justification is forensic, which means that God spoke and declared you righteous, and therefore you are. Okay, that doc, that justification does two things. Number one, it uh, declares you to be righteous, and number two, it's the forgiveness of sins. Okay, and I want to show how not only Christ like fulfills that, but also where in Scripture, you know, in the New Testament and some of the Old Testament, where we're actually seeing this take place and the evidence that we have. You know, for this sort of thing. Um, and this is going to also revolve around the faithfulness of Christ and where I'm getting that from. If you've heard me say that before, that we are saved by the faithfulness of Christ, um, you know, why I'm using that specific type of, of wording. Um, so I think that it's going to be a, a fun study. I've actually recorded this episode a week ahead of time to give me a little more time to uh, put it all together for you. But that will be... Um, you know, episode uh, 22, because I think this is um, uh, episode 21 that I'm doing right now. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, episode 22, I'm going to be giving you an illustration. So, if you ever want to put together a Bible study, um, uh, this is, you know, the process that I'm going to kind of walk through. So, if... If you don't care about that, then, you know, well, hey, this series is done for you. This this series is complete. Um, I want to thank you for listening to The Theology Pit, um, for supporting The Theology Pit. If you could do me a favor and, you know, go to iTunes and leave a comment, um, give a rating to The Theology Pit. That helps me kind of uh, move up in the... Um, uh, in the rankings there, I guess, so more people can find it. Um, you know, tweet this stuff out, share this stuff with your friends, let them know what it's about, let them know what the theology pit's about, that I'm not here really uh, taking sides except for the Christian side, but denominationally, I'm trying not to take sides. You'll know, you know, what my, my views are, but, um, you know, whenever I represent other views, I don't want to try and do it like terribly. You know, sometimes I do good at that. Sometimes I don't, but, um, you know, uh, let people know that it's, it's kind of a, um, you know, a, a neutral space for that. If you have any questions, 
Uh, you can email me, samson at samsonstick.com. That's S-A-M-S-O-N-S-T-I-C-K.com. Send me a message on Facebook at The Theology Pit. You can find the page there. Um, I'm trying to think of where else you can get a hold of me. Uh, samsonstick.com. You can go there and uh, you know um, find my email and find the Facebook accounts and all that stuff. But... Um, other than that, um, I'm, maybe I should put together a YouTube channel for some of this stuff and get some of the, some more merchandising and, and that sort of thing coming into play. Um, hey, let me know, you know, maybe like what your favorite version of the Bible is or what your favorite passages are or, you know, anything like that. Any any type of, um, you know, correspondence or anything, be more than happy to address. And um after next week's episode, um, you know, the pit's going to go dormant for a while until the next series, you know, starts up and I'm still trying to figure out exactly where I want to go with it. What, um, what topic I want to touch on. Cause there's a lot of topics. I mean, you have topics on, you know, how we think, you know, um, epistemology, how we come to know what truth is, you know, especially as Christians, what, what do we use for that? Um, the doctrine of God, you know, Trinitarianism, there's, uh, anthropology, um, study of man, homartiology, the study of sin. Um, there's the study of the church, ecclesiology, and the study of the end times, eschatology. There's a lot of different things to go for. So any, any suggestions you have, I'll take into consideration. Now it's time to close down the pit. 